Today we, we look further at this wonderful thing called, this wonderful book called the Word of God. You may have heard people say, but surely you don't, you don't read this book anymore. Surely it's just a book of fanciful stories, of legends, and it's so old, it's so ancient. Why don't you spend your time reading Harry Potter or whoever you want to read? And I know many people, and I've been in many living rooms of people who own Bibles but rarely read them, but they put them on the top shelf alongside their treasured books, their collected works of Shakespeare or Dickens or their encyclopedias. And there's a sense in which the Bible does belong on the top shelf of any bookcase. But that's not where it ought to be. The Bible ought to be on the, on the desk, on the bedside table, on the coffee table, where it is frequently used and referred to. But in another sense, the Bible deserves a shelf all of its own. It doesn't belong, in a sense, next to any other book because it is entirely unique and entirely different to any other work of literature. And this morning we're going to share some thoughts about that to put into your hands some, in, some ammunition, if you like. When people come at you with their comments about the Bible, that you can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you don't know enough about this book. Let me tell you a bit more about it. The Sanskrit scholar, Professor Montero Williams, himself a non-Christian, spent 42 years studying a wide range of ancient books, said this, pile all those ancient books, if you like, on the left-hand side of your desk, but place on the right-hand side the Holy Bible, all by itself, alone, and with a wide gap between them, for there is a gulf between the Bible and all of the other sacred texts of the East, which severs them utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. The Bible, I hope I can prove to you this morning, is entirely unique. But I do need to say to you this, that the uniqueness of the Bible doesn't prove in itself that it is the Word of God. All it proves is that the Bible is unique. But that's good to know. That's a starting point. We know that the Bible is the Word of God because of some of the things we talked about last week. But most especially, and we need to come back to this again and again, people will only be absolutely convinced that the Bible is the Word of God when the Holy Spirit convinces them in their hearts that that is the case. And that's what we need to be praying for. For those folk who cast the Bible aside, for those folk who put it on the shelf with all the other books and never, never look at it. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of the truth and the authority of this book. That's what we ought to pray. But I'm going to show you six or seven ways in which I believe the Bible is absolutely unique. First of all, I believe it's unique because of the way it's built up and the way that it is, its continuity of message. So, for example, the Bible is the only book that I'm aware of that took around about 15 or 1,600 years to write. I don't know of any others. I'm not sure that any authors have lived that long. More than that, it is written by a whole number of people. We're not sure exactly how many, because we don't know for sure who wrote one or two of the books, but somewhere around 40, 42 different people wrote this book. And they came from all works of life. In fact, if you look carefully at the, at, at the books of the Bible, you, you hardly see a professional writer at all. You've got tent makers like Paul. You've got fishermen. 
You've got shepherds, you've got soldiers and kings. And they all come together to put together this library of books. And of course it's written in all sorts of different places. It isn't always written in the confines of a comfortable study. But it's written on pieces of papyrus in the desert. Sometimes it's written in a dungeon. We see John the Apostle writing in exile on a, on a stony island off the coast of Turkey. We see it being written from prison walls and from palaces. And further than that, it's written on three different continents. Most of it is written in what we would call today uh, Turkey and the, and the Middle East, but it's written in Africa. We know that. There's some, a lot of writing takes place in Egypt, and parts of it take place in, in Europe, modern-day Greece, and possibly even Rome. And it's written at different times. There, there are writers who write in the middle of battle. There are writers who write in the middle of great sacrifices. There are people who write in the middle of great luxury and peace. And there are those, as we've said, who write in times of great exile. And it's written by people who are in a vast array of different moods. Some of them write from the joy of their hearts, and some of them write when sorrow is great and anguish. Some write during times of certainty, others during times of confusion and doubt. And those themes come through. More than that, it is written in three languages. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites. And practically all of the Old Testament, as you know, is written in Hebrew. Some of it, though, is written in, in Aramaic. Aramaic was like a, what we call today a lingua franca, a common language that began to be spoken in the Near East, in the Middle East, around about the time of Alexander the Great, about 600 years or so before the coming of Christ. And for two or three hundred years, Aramaic became uh, the language of the people, if you like. And you do get sections of the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra that are written in Aramaic. There's a little bit of Aramaic in the New Testament. That moment when Christ cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is in Aramaic. Making sure, as it were, almost that everybody can understand what is being said. And then, of course, it is written in Greek. What we know today is Koine Greek or Common Greek. It's a little bit different to the classical Greek of the Homers and, and the others. And once again, Greek was a, a lingua franca of the world from the time of the Caesars onwards. You say, well, didn't they speak Latin during the Roman times? Well, very rarely. Latin was the language that was used in the courts. It was a language for formal occasions. Most folk spoke Greek. So most of the New Testament then is written in this Greek Furthermore, it's written, sorry, I'm going one too far. It's written in a, a variety of, of literary styles. You know yourself. There's history, there's biography, there's poetry, there's satire, there's allegory, there's personal correspondence, a wide variety of different styles. And more than that, it's written to discuss hundreds of controversial subjects. Whenever if you're going to write a book and you're going to write on a controversial subject, be careful what you say. The Bible doesn't hold any punches. It's written on a score of controversial subjects that were controversial then and remain controversial today. But it doesn't hold back. It deals with dozens and dozens of these stories. So what are we saying? We're saying here we have a book, a library of books, 
written over 15, 1,600 years by 40-some people, writing all over the place, writing from different moods that most of them didn't know one another. They're writing about all sorts of things. And yet, we have one single unfolding story. One single unfolding story. And this story is the story of God dealing with man. God taking men and women and transforming their lives based on the grace of, of our Lord Jesus, based on the, on the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, based on faith. It's a, there's a thread of salvation through God that starts way back in the book of Genesis, right near the beginning, and continues right through to the end of the book of Revelation. Where salvation, is, is, where salvation is brought to a whole, where everybody sees what it all is, where everybody experiences it. And this maybe is a controversial statement in its own. The Bible never contradicts itself. Now, when I asked some of you guys for questions going into this series, some of you came with questions by saying, doesn't the Bible contradict itself here or here or here? Well, I don't believe it does. And I believe we can take those apparent contradictions one by one by one and look at them very carefully and discover that they are apparent and seeming but not real. But more about that in a later message. Let's go a step further. The Bible is also unique in its distribution. Now, it's not unusual to read of a best-selling book that sells thousands of copies, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of copies. But the Bible, in the Western world, in Africa, in South America, in, in Russia, is every single year the best-selling book. Even though it is the most freely distributed book ever, it is still on top of every best-selling list, year after year after year. It is the most best-selling, freely distributed book, even though today it remains the most stolen book. More people steal Bibles from shop than they steal any other books. And yet Bibles are still going out there by the millions. I don't know whether you can see all of these figures, facts and figures, but this shows us this is in a single year, figures from the United Bible Societies, just how many Bibles are being distributed. So you look in the very first column, Over 20 million full Bibles are distributed every single year. You look further down to, for example, the, the second from last column. Over 472 selections of Scripture, 72 million selections of Scripture are distributed every year. 35 million new reader selections. That's, that's selections of the Bible that are particularly designed for folk who've never read the Bible before. Millions upon millions upon millions of scriptures and pieces of scripture are spread across the world year by year by year, and yet people still buy it as a bestseller year after year after year. The Bible is unique in its translation. Once again, it's not unusual to hear of books that are translated into several languages. Some of them may be even many languages. But the Bible is in a different category altogether. I had a wonderful experience during my, one of my summer vacations. 
I was in the States for most of my early university work, and some of us from a Bible college just north of New York were invited to take part in a linguistics project in Ecuador. In Ecuador, in the upper reaches of the Amazon River before it flows down and into Brazil, there are still, or they were at that time, still tribes of people, small tribes of maybe 50, 60, or 100 people that had still not been contacted much at all by the outside world. These were tribes that had a language that they spoke to one another, but it was never written down. They didn't have an alphabet. No alphabet, just a spoken language. And we had the opportunity with one of the Bible societies to go into one of these areas to listen to and to record these languages. And with the help of a bit of a dodgy translator, we began to understand what they meant when they made a certain sound. It was quite difficult because the sound had a lot of clicks in it, not unlike some of the languages of Southern Africa. In Southern Africa, we have a, a, a tribal group called the Kasa. And this clicking sound is quite difficult to write. Can you imagine? How would you write You know, it's a bit difficult. But after we spent about six weeks on this project, and we began to design for these folk a bit of an alphabet. Now, why were you doing it? They didn't need it. But we wanted to help them to begin to learn and to understand and for us to be able to share the gospel of Christ with folk who didn't even have a written language. Many books are translated into many languages, but none have been translated into currently just over 5,900 languages. Almost 90% of the world's population can now read the Bible in their own language. The Bible was one of the first books ever to be translated. Some 250 years before the coming of Christ, a group of 70 uh, Jewish scholars living in and around uh, the, the area of, of Alexandria in, in, in ancient Egypt translated the Old Testament scriptures into Greek, Koine Greek. The reason they did it, because they'd forgotten, living in Egypt, they'd forgotten how to read and write Hebrew properly. So they got together and they pooled their knowledge and they gave us a version of the Bible, a version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, written by 70 scholars back in 250 BC. A remarkably accurate translation of the Old Testament. And today, again and again and again, organizations like the Wycliffe uh, Bible Translators and others, apparently, according to the latest figures I got from the Bible Society, are currently working on around about 900 languages at the moment. Bits and pieces, uh, updating work and so on. 470 of those will result in totally retranslated Bibles. And at this rate, the Bible could become the world's first truly universally translated book within the next few years. God's people said, hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Every man, woman, and child who has a language of their own will be able to have a Bible in their language in a very, very short time. The Bible is unique in the way it's been persecuted, if you like. But first of all, it, it survived through time. It's, when I looked at this, I thought, this is, this is remarkable. Remember that the scriptures were not written with computers and saved in the cloud. They were written on perishable pieces of parchment, most of them. Parchment which has a shelf life of maybe a hundred years if it's kept in pristine circumstances. So the Bible was written and then it was copied and copied and copied and copied. 
and preserved and preserved and preserved over time. The Bible was always handwritten. It was not written any other way. And yet here we have today, as we showed last week, more manuscript evidence for the authenticity of the Scriptures, the inerrancy of the Scriptures, than any other ancient book. It survived through terrific persecution as well. What book has had to withstand the persecution, the vicious attacks that the Bible has had to go through? It was outlawed in parts of the Roman Empire very, very early on as scriptures began to circulate. In the first few centuries, already it was being outlawed. And in many parts of the world today, it is still outlawed. There are many parts of the Near East and parts of China where the the book is outlawed. You're not allowed to have a copy. And if you're found with a copy, you can have their serious consequences. One of the thrilling things is to read the current state of the church in China, which people are now suggesting may be the largest church in the world in terms of population. Millions upon millions, but very few Bibles. Very few Bibles. They take a passage and they go home and they copy it and hand the Bible back. So one Bible circulates amongst 1,000 or 2,000 people, and everyone makes their own little copy of their favorite passages. And that's the way that the Bible has survived again and again and again. Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Bibles have been taken out of schools, The Gideons are being told they can no longer put Bibles in hotel rooms. God says, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. It survived through huge criticism. No book has been criticized as much as the Bible. Hastings put it this way, infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and trying to overthrow this book. And yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it a long, long time ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers, even theologians, have tried their hand at destroying it. They all die. This book lives. In more recent times, in the 18th and 19th and early 20th century, a group of scholars, amongst them ashamedly Christian scholars, went on a, a campaign to try to, under, try to get to the, the real word of God behind the so-called myth and legend. And so they began to use different types of methods to try to, to prove, in a sense, that this book wasn't indeed as inspired by God as we think it is. It was called higher criticism. And they did huge damage to the reputation of the Bible in many places. But higher criticism today is largely discredited. Nobody talks about it anymore. And the word of God continues. It has survived. The Bible is unique in its prophecy. If you're going to write a book, let me give you a piece of advice. I've got got a hundred books in me that I want to write one day. They've all got to about page three and they've been abandoned. Anyone have a similar experience? But if you're going to write a book, let me give you a good word of advice. Don't write a book on prophecy. Don't make predictions. Because you'll end up with egg on your face. 
predictions is tricky ground. But we know from our scriptures, dozens and dozens and dozens, nay hundreds of prophecies that came true and are still coming true and will come true eventually. Wilbur Smith, not the author Wilbur Smith, but a well-known professor from Moody Bible Institute says this, it is the only volume ever produced by men or women or groups of men and women in which is to be found a very large body of prophecy relating to the individual nations, to Israel and to many other nations on earth and to key cities and especially to Jesus, to the one who's to be the Messiah. Nowhere else can we find any real specific prophecy of any great event nor any prophecy of a coming saviour to arise in the human race. Josh McDowell suggests if you count them carefully, there are around about 300 separate prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ, all of which came true. Some of those prophecies were written a thousand years or more before Christ came, and they came true. What are the chances of that happening? Well, somebody put it this way. If you were to gather up all of the grains of sand on all of the beaches of the UK and take one of those grains of sand and put a little X on it and then pile them all up on the island, this huge pile of sand, grains of sand, one of them has an X on it, and you send somebody in there to find that grain of sand with the X, what are the chances of them finding it? Those are the chances that all 300 prophecies on Jesus Christ could have come true in the same man at the same time. Nigh on impossible. You could win the lottery a hundred times before, before that. The Bible has, is unique in its teachings on history. The, from 1 Samuel through to the end of 2 Chronicles, we have a very, very accurate, for example, study of 500 years of the life of the nation of Israel and Judah. The well-known professor William Albright says very, very clearly, he says, Hebrew tradition, this is the writing of the Hebrews about history, excels all others in its clear picture of tribal and family origins. In Egypt, in Babylonia, in Assyria, Phoenicia, Greece, and Rome, we look in vain to find anything anywhere near as complete or comparable. There's nothing like this in the traditions of the Germanic peoples. Neither India nor China can produce anything similar. He also refers to Genesis chapter 10, which is the so-called table of nations. And he says it stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks. And it was written three and a half thousand years ago. It's unique in its teaching on character. Lewis Berry Schaefer says something quite interesting. He says, the Bible is not such a book a man would write if he could, or could write even if he would. The Bible deals very frankly, alarmingly so at times, with the sins of its own characters and even its own heroes. Even when those sins reflect badly on the people of God, the leaders, the biblical writers themselves. So in Genesis 12 and Genesis 49, you see these terrible stories of the sins of the patriarchs. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, the sins of the, the people of Israel. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the terrible story of David's adultery with Bathsheba. In the Gospels, in in Matthew 8, Mark 6, Luke 8 and 9, John 10, the Gospel writers paint their own faults and the faults of the other disciples. And in 1 Corinthians 1 and 15 and 11, we see the, the early church being painted in all, sometimes it's fairly ugly reality. The squabbles and the, the fights that were going on even in those early days. The Bible is above all an extremely honest book. Paints over no cracks. Does no plastic surgery on any warts. You probably have read one or two of these self-help books. Maybe from Anthony Robbins or Stephen Covey or one of those. And they feel so comfortable to read because they tell you you are a wonderful person with a heart of good. You have a heart that is full of potential to be great and all you need to do is reach that potential and you'll be happy and above all you'll be rich. But the Bible was written by men with God's inspiration and women, not as a self-help book at all. Because it starts by addressing its readers not as inherently good people with good intentions, but as miserable sinners on a road to self-destruction. And there's no possibility at all all, of us helping ourselves. That's why the self-help books sit here. And there's a wide gap between them and the Bible. The Bible is unique in its influence on literature. Just close that just for a second. It's influence on literature. We shared with the home group leaders the other day how many times we quote the Bible and we don't realize we're doing it. Hundreds upon hundreds of times. But the Bible is unique on its influence in literature. Clellan McAfee says this, if every Bible in any great city were to be destroyed the book would easily be put back together again because it's so well quoted in all of the libraries. You wouldn't have any difficulty putting it together again. The great Jewish writer and and Nobel, Nobel Prize historian Eli Wiesel says, the impact of the Bible has no equal, whether on the social or ethical plane or that of literary creations. Its characters are dramatic, its themes timeless, its triumphs and defeats overwhelming. Each story touches us, and each call penetrates us. The Bible has had a huge influence on writers. And you can can read, whether you're looking at C.S. Lewis or Dostoevsky or Chekhov, whoever you enjoy to read, and you can read of how the Bible has influenced them. And finally, the Bible is unique on its influence on civilization. The Bible's influence, especially on the Western world and the affairs of the Western world, is is clear for anyone who studies history. Christianity, or civilization rather, has been influenced more by the Judeo-Christian scriptures than any other single book or group of books ever written anywhere in the world. The Bible presents the highest ideals known to man, and these ideas have molded civilizations. The Bible has given strength to the freedom fighter. It's given courage to the persecuted. It's given a blueprint to the social reformer. And it's given inspiration to writers. 
The painter and sculptor Jean-Jacques Rousseau, himself not a Christian, says the following, Behold the works of our philosophers and all their pompous diction. How mean and contemptible they are by comparison with the scriptures. Is it possible that a book at once so simple and so sublime should be merely the work of a man? I close with another philosopher of that ilk, Voltaire. Voltaire was probably one of the most virulently opposed uh, to the Bible and to Christianity. Much more so than, for example, today's Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchings, and others. Much more so. When it came to God, Christianity, and the Bible, uh, Richard Dawkins has nothing on him. Listen to what Voltaire says. Just listen carefully to what he says. You'll find it a little bit discouraging, maybe. As a rule, says Voltaire, theologians know nothing of this world and far less about the next. But they have the power of stating the most absurd propositions with faces as solemn as stupidity touched by fear. They are, for the most part, engaged in poisoning the minds of the young, prejudicing children against science, teaching the astronomy and geology of the Bible, and inducing all to desert the sublime standard of reason. That's what Voltaire says. Voltaire said something else. Towards the end of his life, he said, and it is recorded, within 50 years, there will not be a Bible in Europe. Voltaire owned two homes, one in the suburbs of Paris and one in Geneva. Shortly after his death, his home in Geneva became the headquarters of the Geneva Bible Society, from where Bibles were spread across the entire subcontinent. We've proved nothing today other than that you can hold your head high with this book. We've not proved that it is God's word, but we've done enough, I hope, to put doubt in the mind of those who dismiss it entirely and quickly. It is a very, very special book according to all standards. It is unique. Uniqueness doesn't prove inspiration. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But carry it with you. Carry it high. Carry it loud. Carry it everywhere. I was much put in my place, and I close with this. Some coffee bar ministry back in the 70s in the city of Cape Town where we ran a lot of these coffee bar ministries and folk would come off the street and, and many were getting converted in those days. Many of them young hippies and students and things like this. And one young fella, his name was Pinky. I don't know why they called him Pinky, but that's what his name, I'll never forget. Pinky got converted and he became so enthusiastic. And what we did whenever somebody was converted, we gave them a copy of the scriptures, but it was a little one so they could carry them around in their pocket. And when I gave Pinky his Bible, he kind of gave me a look, and I, I couldn't understand why, but he wasn't in, entirely thankful. When I saw Pinky a week later, he purchased himself a Bible the size of a double brick, and he carried it around with him everywhere he went. And I said to him one day, Pinky, why don't, when, you walk, when you're walking around, when you're going into Cape Town, why don't you take the little one with you? It's much easier to carry. It's got all the same words, 
And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, if my Lord could carry a cross up that tree, up that hill to Golgotha, what pain is it for me to carry my Bible wherever I go? Carry it loud. Carry it everywhere. Remember last week's memory verse? Who would like to say it out? 2 Timothy 3.16. Shall we say it together? All Scripture. Fantastic. Fantastic. So most of you have passed the... Now, this time I thought, seeing that was such a difficult verse, I'm going to give you a real easy one. There it is. All right, for next Sunday... You've got to still remember the older one, but you've got to get the new one as well. All right, it's not, that's the last one, sorry. There it is. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you with our, the, our deepest, deepest hearts that you have not left us clueless You have not left us in doubt. You have not left us searching for knowledge. But you've left us your word. You've revealed yourself and your son to us in this word. You've revealed everything we need to know for life and practice and doctrine. Thank you this morning, Lord, for your word. For Jesus' sake. Amen.